Hey guys, how's it going? So before we get into this week's podcast, I've just got to give you a little heads up that there's a there's a fly here in the studio. So if you if I'm speaking, you hear sort of like a pass my uh, obviously into your earbuds or wherever wherever you're listening to this, whether it be in the gym or the car or walking the dog or whatever. It's actually a fly dive bombing me. He's a little monkey, he just keeps on <laughs> keeps on coming. Anyway, let me tell you about who we've got today um, on this week's podcast. It is John Thorne, who most people will know him as the double bass player with the experimental trip-hop duo Lamb. He's a really, really killing bass player. And he's also played with a whole bunch of other amazing artists, such as Scott Matthews, the, the jazz sax player, Gilad Atzman, who's amazing if you haven't heard him, by the way, um, Liam Bailey and Robert Fripp. He's recorded with a ton of different people, and I've seen John many times over in Manchester. Um, he's actually living down, I think he's on the Isle of Wight right now, uh, living down there, but he was like a big guy on the Manchester jazz scene for a long time. Now, a few years back, he wrote and recorded an album called Watching the Well, in tribute to his mentor, Danny Thompson. So we're going to find out all about that. And he's also going to tell about us, um, tell us about his trio with the Scottish singer-songwriter, James Yorkson, who you definitely need to check out, and Suzail Yousaf Khan. Hopefully I Hopefully I said that right. Um, who's an amazing Sarangari player from India. And they'll also be playing the huge festival over here, which is called Glastonbury. They're going to be playing in Latitude and the Green Man Festival as well, which are some of the biggest festivals over here in the UK. And he's also got another solo album out this year. Yep, he's a busy man. Um, on the uh, Static Caravan label and a 21st anniversary tour coming up with Lamb. So he's got so many things going on. And the cool thing about John is that he's, you know, he's a double bass player in the dance music, especially when Lamb were concerned and, you know, in the 90s. Uh, but he uh, he's also pretty handy on the bass guitar as well so yeah he's a he's a super cool guy and and i'm sure that you're going to love this interview now before we get into this interview as well We've had a lot of questions coming through recently about the membership over at Scott's Bass Lessons. Just people really asking who it's for and, you know, and whether it would be for them. And in a nutshell, guys, if you're a hobbyist or semi-pro bass player and you're focused on taking your bass playing to the next level or your bass playing has been stuck in a rut for way too long, then the membership at Scott's Bass Lessons is absolutely for you. We've got an awesome course library currently with over 25 Yep, 25 step-by-step courses in there. And we add a brand new course each and every month. It includes courses such as the Beginning Jazz Survival Guide, which is an epic four-hour video course where I take you right from the start through to the point where you're going to feel confident enough to go and sit in at local jam sessions and obviously play your own jazz gigs as well. We've also got courses where I've got a full band in the studio with me, such as the Essential Blues Deep Dive course, where we teach you everything you will ever need to know about playing killer blues bass lines. You're going to learn about... Uh, mastering the shuffle feel, blues progression variations that you absolutely need to know, intros, outros, turnarounds, 
the whole nine yards. And we've got courses on pretty much everything else you can think of as well. On top of that, every week we also host a live stream seminar with some of the best base educators on the planet. And the cool thing is you can interact with them and ask the tutors anything you want in real time during each seminar from the comfort of your own home. It's an absolute game changer, guys. Nothing like this has ever existed before. And the, fa- the the cool thing as well is the faculty consists of the best of the best of the best. It's not just, you know, I haven't just got John, you know, Joe, Joe Bloggs from down the road. Um, I've got the best guys teaching in the SBR faculty, guys. Many of our tutors or um, taught, have taught or currently teach at some of the best music schools on the planet. So yeah, if you want to drop 80 grand on a college degree to get access to these guys, that is an option. But obviously, the most, much easier option and much cheaper option is to tune in every mon- Monday. Yeah, we do them every Monday to one of our live streams where you can learn from these guys, ask questions in real time each and every week as part of your membership at no extra cost. In fact, we've just over the last few weeks, we've had seminars focused on exactly how to organize your practice time effectively so you know what exercises to work on and specifically how much time to work on them. We've looked at baseline and groove creation, soloing and improvisation, cleaning up your technique, theory, harmony, and way more. In fact, as a member, you also get access to all of the past seminars as well in the seminar archive and there's over a hundred archived seminars in there so whatever style of music you love we have got you covered whether it's jazz funk blues rock r&b reggae gospel or whatever else we've got you know courses and seminars to cater for whatever you're into and if you're thinking well that's cool but i just haven't got enough time for this let me just tell you if you can put aside just 30 to 60 minutes a day for maybe like four or five days a week you will be able to take your bass playing to a completely new level within no time i'm not asking you to sit down for hours every day just 30 to 60 minutes a day for four to five days a week and you'll be able to completely you know, completely revolutionize the way that you're playing bass. So if you're tired of spending thousands of gear and still not sounding any better, the SBL membership is for you. And you can grab a completely free 14-day free trial so you can take the entire thing for a test drive just to see if it's for you. And if you don't like it for whatever reason, you can cancel your membership within that 14 days and you won't be billed. You don't even need to get in contact with us. You can cancel your membership with the click of one button. So it's super easy. I've tried to remove every single barrier I can just so you can get in there, check it out and get a vibe for what we're doing with Scott Space Essence with the membership and that really it's a completely new opportunity for people that want to take their bass playing to the next level. Nothing has ever existed like this before and I'm just hoping that you'll come along and get, you know, get in on the party. Now, without further ado, let's get into this week's podcast with the amazing John Thorne. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SBL podcast, joined today by John Thorne, all the way from the Isle of Wight. Um, John, you'll know from Lamb, probably the main gig you've been on, John, right, for the last 20 years, 20? 20, 21, years, but you've done 1996. 96 when you joined, was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's start there. Let's start um, with that, that coming together with you and Andy and Lou. How did that come about? Um... I actually it came about through Graham Massey from 808 State, who was he was producing Bjork in Manchester at the time, uh, and he uh, he came out to 
a jazz jam session I was doing at a venue in Manchester called Night and Day, uh, which then had only just opened, uh, just stopped being a fish and chip shop and just become a venue. Uh, and uh, it was a, a Monday night, classic rainy Manchester Monday night. There's about three people and a dog there, you know. Um, <laughs> And unbeknownst to me, one of them was Graham Massey, and he came up to me afterwards and said, I liked you playing. Uh, I know a band that are getting some stuff together at the moment. Can I take your number? And didn't really give me any details. Uh, but I gave him my number, and um, I got a call from Lou, who sent me a cassette. I remember them with three tracks on and said, We've got an aud- We're auditioning for this new band we've put together. Um, for a double basis, come along. So that's how it very first started. That's how I got in touch with them in the first place. And what was the kind of musical landscape in Manchester like at the time? Um, yeah, it was really a really interesting time. Obviously, Manchester was kind of coming out of the, the, the whole sort of house explosion uh, into more diverse forms of sort of electronic music at that point. Um, it was still a hotbed of uh, indie music and rock music. Um, I mean, there's always all kinds of music going on in Manchester. The mid-90s is a very healthy time for it, I think. Um, and Lamb were one of those bands that came out of that new wave of, of electronic music bands at that point. Um, the three tracks that they sent me on the cassette were really diverse, very interesting, not like anything I'd heard before. I think one of them had sampled double bass on it. Um, but it wasn't conventional in any way. Uh, it really was a case of like, wow, okay, how am I going to make my voice and how I hear music fit into this? Um, and also, there were a few tracks around at the time in, in sort of electronic-related music that had double bass in them but mostly it was just cut up or sampled or a fragment there wasn't really a double bass player that I could turn to to look you know for some sort of influence or some kind of way in so it was a really open playing field for me Uh, I mean I'm analyzing it more now than I did at the time at the time it was just like oh great a gig you know (laughs) this could be good this could be good and it sounds really really different uh it's just this could be something quite exciting I mean, I'll be totally honest with you. I, I showed up for the audition. I'd just come straight from a wedding gig uh, and I didn't have time to change. So I was in like a three-piece suit. <laughs> uh, and I showed up at Sankey's Soap where the audition was upstairs and everyone was just in massive sunglasses and just looking uber cool. And I just nerded my way in there. Um, but the audition seemed to go really well musically, thank goodness. Um, and shortly after that, they said, you've got the job, you know, so... That completely changed my life, obviously. Um, I was 28. I'd been playing for five years. I didn't start till I was 23. It's completely self-taught, and I'd been playing catch-up severely. You know, uh, everyone else had kind of been through the Royal Northern College that played double bass, or they were in... They seemed to be more in musical boxes of where you'd expect double bass to be, whereas it's not something I'd ever wanted to do. Um, my main inspiration had been Danny Thompson and I'd met him when I was 23 at the band on the wall doing a, a group of his called whatever. And he'd said to me at that point, I said to him, I, 
I really want to try and make a career out of this. I, I, I'm so in love with double bass, but I really don't know where to start, you know. And he just said, don't bring any prejudice into music. Just give a wide open perspective and take it anywhere where you want to take it. There is no good or bad music. There's just what you like and what you don't like, you know. So I'd kind of kept that as a sort of a mantra in my mind all the way down the line. But I'd scuffled for years, taking each and every kind of gig under the sun uh, just to try and make a living, you know, really. Um, but that that changed things enormously because suddenly I went from running around pubs doing all kinds of crazy stuff to uh, the fourth gig Lamb ever did was at Ross Kilda Festival in Denmark at three in the morning on a Saturday. Uh, well, it was technically Sunday, but anyway, uh, to about 35,000 people, you know, so big step up. I went from pub to I did the first three gigs on a double bass uh, with howling feedback because the pickups couldn't take the volume level of the rest of the music. And uh, on the third gig, which was at Brighton's Essential Festival, I borrowed somebody's upright stick and immediately was like, all right, okay, got to get one of these. This is going to work. And that Ross Kilder gig was my first gig on um, a Mo Clifton custom-made uh, electric double bass. And from that point, it all started to sort of fall into line, but it was a real baptism of fire, you know, just quickly for people that don't know, how would you describe the stick bass and how is it different to an acoustic? Um, it has all the physical attributes of a double bass without the body. So, you know, your neck's the same, your stop length, the same, the way your technique is the same, the way you play is exactly the same, only removing all the air from the body stops the feedback situation um so you lose the, the acoustic quality of it but it's more it's more dimensional than uh, say a fretless bass would be because you've still got the heft of the neck and the thick chunk chunk of, of ebony that you're playing with and you're still using double bass technique so for me the focus is still trying to draw a sound out of the instrument as deeply as possible uh but it's just a little more compacted in its sound and is more open to the use of effects and stuff like that. Um, although, you know, I love double bass, normal double bass with effects. When I first saw the Esborn Svensson trio, I just blew my mind. I went and spent every penny I had the next day on loads of different effects pedals. <laughs> I remember that, but, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's intrinsically the same and you play it in the same way. Uh, but you have a bracing system that goes against your body for for balance because the body's not there. Right. Um, okay. You were with Lamb. You had a pretty big learning curve already. Yeah. What happened next? What was the next sort of direction you guys went in? Especially um, dealing with the electronic side of things. Well, it really was quite a roller coaster because the band became successful very quickly, uh, particularly abroad perhaps more so than, than uh, in the UK. Um, and we started touring internationally. We were in America quite quickly, um, went to Australia, and we were all over Europe. And I remember the second album, Fear of Fours, was a, that was a particularly big album for me because Andy gave me a lot of freedom in the studio to come in and just play all over all, all kinds of stuff. In some cases, he edited that playing down and made parts out of it. In other cases, like 
in a track like Ear Parcel, you just kind of let me play, and it turned into a kind of a solo bass section, the whole thing. Um, and also I wrote, I think I co-wrote three tracks on that record as well, so our relationship then was very integrated. Um, after that, Andy and Lou moved to London, and I stayed in Manchester. Uh, and uh, I wasn't on the What Sound record. Uh, I did do some sessions for it, but the producer at the time didn't didn't go with what I'd done. But then I came back on board for Darkness and Wonder, the one after that. And I guess the sound just developed uh, kind of on the road. Really. I mean, we were on the road for about nine years, you know. Uh, it nine years or about eight years. And we toured a lot. Um, it's all quite a whirlwind. It was quite a hedonistic time as well. So, uh, um, you know, the chemistry within and without the band played quite a big part in what was going on. Uh, but we really rode that, that wave, that electronica wave, uh, all the way into to about 2004 when the band broke up for a while. How did your playing change in that time? It changed phenomenally, actually, because uh, I had to find a completely new way of playing because the conventions of normal bass playing didn't seem to work within the music. For a start, the music wasn't structured in a verse, chorus, bridge kind of. It was far more fragmented than that and had more soundscape stuff going on. And so I had to try and find a way to explore the music that involved not just playing bass lines, but involved playing textures, uh, learning sometimes when not to play anything. Um, we tended to write a record and then go out on the road and tour it, so it was constantly evolving as well. So. During, during the gigs, things were always changing. Also, Andy had the whole gig running through his mixing desk. So he was mixing each gig and does mix each gig, almost like a DJ would mix a set. And he has all kinds of effects, uh, um, which he can throw in at any point or loop things. Or So a, a lot of the music that had drawn me into playing double bass was based around improvising in the moment and the idea of improvising in the moment. I was very excited by the music of the ECM record label, for example. Um, something that took classical sensibility and jazz sensibility and, and mixed it in, in that sort of beautiful way that that did. Uh, and I found that that skill set worked really well in, in, in Lamb because I had to listen all the time and be in the moment all the time. So things were always fluid, always changing, and you had to be alert and and, and on it to try and adapt to what was going on at any given point because it could just change like that, you know, on the spot in the middle of a gig. So, um, and also, yeah, I, I learned to use effects, try and deploy effects in an interesting way because Andy programs a lot of sub bass into the music as well. Then I, it's important sometimes to know when to go with that, when to get out of the way of that and how to work with that. So I wasn't always thinking necessarily like a bassist, really. Sometimes I was just trying to find sounds that worked within that situation and worked well. So you couldn't really often differentiate what I was doing from what was coming off all, all the uh, electronic technology. So it really opened my mind out. Um, and the lovely thing was as well, you know, I'd come back from touring and I'd be knocking about with all my mates in Manchester doing loads of jazz gigs and, used to play at Matt and Fred's Jazz Club all the time with people of the quality of like the drummer Luke Flowers and the Cinematic Orchestra and 
Stuart McCullum and John Ellis and all these amazing musicians in Manchester. So I was taking all those experiences away with me and then bringing back other experiences and mixing it into that situation at home. So it was a very fertile time for me. I think Manchester had amazing musical soil within which to grow because it had world-class musicians in it. I was very lucky. The generation of musicians I sort of came up with was incredible, really, really incredible. What advice would you give to musicians in the similar situation now, just coming up, finding their feet in Manchester or another town like that, where the landscape now is very, very different? I think it's possibly a lot harder Hmm. um, now than it was. Um, The advent of technology and the way that it's used in music has really changed things radically. Uh, When Lamb were coming out, you could earn a living from selling your music and CDs, whereas now the concentration is more on probably gigging and selling merchandise at a gig, but doing gigs perhaps and down, you know, downloads, that kind of thing, obviously. Um, I don't think in terms of certain fundamentals, which I adhere to, I don't think they've changed. I think if you want to progress as a musician, it's essential that first of all, that you realize regardless of whatever is in your hands, you're the instrument, you know, this is the instrument this is the instrument, not whatever bass that you've got, but your relationship to music itself, how you hear it, how quickly you can translate what you're hearing and feeling into the physical doing of sound. You know, that's, that's really the first fundamental, how well you listen, first of all, to music, and then how well you listen to yourself hearing music, and then how well you listen to everything that's going on around you and find something that's appropriate in that situation. That's the most important orientation, not what you're the author of and how you can implement that into music. That's irrelevant, I think, really, compared to genuinely following the impulse in the moment of what you're hearing and being able to translate that into music in the, you know, at the time, right there in that moment. That's the important thing, I think. You know, you're the instrument. When did you recognise that as being such an important part of what you're trying to do? I guess I've just evolved into that way of thinking. First of all, you know, I was just super enamoured by other people's chops and what they could play. And, you know, I spent a while chasing after people's licks unsuccessfully. And uh, it's not until I realised the way that I actually learned music was... I found it too complicated to hear clustered chords and big things to start with. So for me, I had to take a fixed point of a root note and then uh, chromatically play all the 12 tones against that until I could hear them without having to play them. This was the thing, you know, not let, letting your fingers and what your fingers do lead you musically, but allowing your ear, what are you actually hearing? Because if you tune into that, you don't have the limitations that you have in your physical technique. You're stretching to try and find something you're hearing. You're stretching your technique into how you're hearing music. Most people practice technique to death and think they can make music after that. But there's no connection with music in that equation. You have to make that connection with music. And it all boils down to one note against another, that space. And not just what it, whether it's a fifth or a major third, or but hearing and feeling that and recognizing that and in the moment being able to just respond to that straight away 
And that's very liberating because you can be listening to the radio trying to figure out what's going on on a tune without having an instrument in your hands if you're the instrument. So you can be practicing all the time, you know. When you're going to sleep, you get a bit of melody, you try and figure out what it is, follow it around. And the chord is just a series of intervals stacked on top of each other. So once you get a very close chromatic relationship to each interval against a fixed point, everything becomes possible. Your, your ear starts to be able to hear everything. So when you stack those intervals up on top of each other, it becomes easier to recognize them, I think. So pare it down to its simple elements, I think. Simplicity is the key. And that's a huge lesson for me as I've gone on. Because I started late, my initial feeling was, my God, I've got to be the biggest, badass, fastest double bass player in the world or I'm not going to get anywhere. You know, and I, used to, I used to go to jam sessions and be really aggressive and just try and cut everybody and be the man, you know, in my mind. Uh, and people were really patient with me, thank God, for a while. <laughs> and then I realised I'd got things completely the wrong way around. And actually, I'm the very last thing in the whole chain of importance when it comes to music. The first thing is, what does the music that you're about to play on need? What does it need? Maybe it doesn't need you at all. Maybe that's a good starting point. Maybe I play as little on this as possible and find something that's really appropriate. Maybe it will be quite knotted and, and complicated, or, but my ear has to tell me what it is. And unless you start from a, a point of silence and space and nothing and then try and hear what music is coming out of you to put on it, you know, that's a much more musical way of approaching things. Sometimes playing the simplest thing or playing nothing is the hardest thing to do, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. And the music, if you're listening properly, the music will tell you what it needs, you know, I think. When you're playing with that approach, how much thought do you put on the intent behind what you're playing? When it, it could be something really busy or it could be something really simple, especially when you're improvising. <sighs> uh, intention. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, I try not to think consciously about it when I'm in that moment. To prepare for it, I try and empty myself completely. And just say to myself, you're a conduit for what's about to come through you. Music is this massive, beautiful, powerful thing over here. Here's your band, and here's you in the middle of it. So how are you best going to get this thing into that thing? <laughs> and generally, it's by getting yourself out of the way. Actually, it's opening yourself as wide as possible and allowing that to flow as freely as possible. That's, that's the orientation. And that's got nothing to do with what you think you can play or what you've you know, regurgitating practice. That, that is as far away from when I'm playing music, music as I want to be. I don't want to regurgitate something that I've practiced before. That would be tedious to me and, and, and wouldn't be nourishing in any way. What I want to do, what I try and do is orient my practice around being that wide in that moment. Obviously technique, you can't, you know, it's very important, but practicing technique along with that impulse is what you have to do. You can't separate the two things out. Yeah, I'll make my fingers go really fast to be an amazing player, then I'll be really great at improvising. Or, yeah, I really want to improvise, but you know, I won't ever practice anything. It, neither of those two things work. You have to do both things simultaneously to make it work. Um, and your intention is everything. What is your intention? It was a very good and important question. What's your intention when you get on stage? You know, are you... Are you trying to put some love into the world? Are you trying to pull a woman or a man? <laughs> or, you know, it, 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 
there's a lot of space in between those two things about what you're trying to do. Um, for me, the idea of playing music is all about connection and a communicative idea that music is the one thing that we've got which unifies people regardless of their creed or their nationality or their colour or anything else. You know, it really is a... I got a great example of this when we put Lamb played... Um, summer stage in New York. They do free concerts every Sunday afternoon in New York in Central Park throughout the summer. And they put two very disparate bands together and they put us together with Femi Kuti with like a 30-piece African. Wow. It was just unbelievable. Like dancers coming out of dancers, you know, and that was massive. And I remember looking out at the crowd and just thinking it was like a map of the world, you know, that everybody was dancing in their own way to the same thing. And I just thought, yeah, that's why I want to be involved with music because it's it's it cuts through divisiveness and it it cuts through philosophy, it cuts through anything, and it brings people together in a beautiful way. And that, for me, that's what keeps me going with playing music now. You know, um, when you get past the kind of self gratification stage, uh, then hopefully you're looking for something deeper. And for me, that's, that's the motivation that keeps me going. And also I really bloody love it. You know, I love, I love bass. I love the feel, the sound of bass. I love the way bass affects other people in the band. I love the way it affects melody, harmony, the music, the audience. I just bloody love it. I feel really lucky. Yeah. You know, this is like my 27th year of a career and I stumbled upon it really. Um, but I knew when I found it that I just wanted to give it every single drop of everything that I had in, in me because I, I fell in love with it so hard and I had to play catch up for a long time to get to that point. Um, but when I got in Lamb, it was like there was a platform for me to take all of these feelings and really run with them, you know, and that's still, it's great. And we were touring in the autumn. I keep thinking it's finished, but it hasn't. We're, we're, we're doing a 21st anniversary tour this autumn, playing the whole first album. Kevin's coming back on trumpet. Nikolai's coming in on the drums. We have some strings, and it keeps kind of – it's like a ball that sort of keeps bouncing. But it's nice because I'm not wanting it to keep bouncing. I'm not chasing it, but it just keeps effervescing, which is good, you know. Let's touch on some of the other projects that you're involved with because you're doing so much. Mm. Um, the trio I saw you with last with um, – Yorkston, Khan, yeah, trio, yeah. Well, that's been amazing for How me. Would you that. Describe that because that's such a <sighs> well. That's a perfect. That's a perfect example of how music can transcend boundaries. You know, you've got a, a Scottish. He's not a folk singer, but he's you know, he's, he's involved. Singer songwriter type. Yeah, singer songwriter with heavy folk influence. Um, and you've got a. Uh, somebody from India who's from one of the highest sort of musical families in Northern India. He's like eighth generation Sahail. Uh, his grandfather played with the Beatles and toured with George Harrison. And, um, and his music is so intrinsic to the culture out there. His family are very deeply involved in everybody's weddings and celebrations of life and everything else, you know, and, and recitals and the religious side of all of that stuff. Uh, and he sings devotional Sufi music as well. So you've got that, and then you've got me in the middle with wherever it is that I'm coming from. Uh, 
And that's been exciting for me because James has been like, yeah, sing. You know, he's sort of making, he's making me sing and play guitar. I've always played guitar to myself in the background quietly, but he's pushed me out there. And I mean, on this new record, he, he even made me sing and play piano on a track. Which I've, that's about as far out of my comfort zone as I can get, I think. Uh, um, so that, that that's really stretching me into new areas and into songwriting more. Um, but it's such a beautiful, unusual sound, and it's just completely happened through jamming by accident. You know, there's so many fusion projects in the world where, okay, we'll take somebody, you know, it's not like we went, we'll take somebody from Delhi and we'll take somebody from Scotland and we'll get some English bass player and see what happens. It's, we just literally do exactly what it is that we do, but just together listening to each other and see what happens. And we've just created our own sort of language out of it, which is amazing, really. It's very, very improvised uh, within structures. So it's we know what form that we're playing on, but then it's never the same every night. It can always deviate and go off somewhere else, and nothing's ever the same way twice. Again, you know, that seems to be a common thread through a lot of the, the paths that my career has taken, because that's kind of where I'm led to. I enjoy that. And this... It's beautiful because it's the volume level is like it's very acoustic. Obviously, when you're dealing with a band like Lamb, that's loud, that's big, and you have to project yourself in a different way. Whereas uh, in this band, I can take things to literally to a pin drop and really utilize dynamics in that way that you can only do with acoustic-led music, which is which is a really phenomenal thing. You know, it's a very deep thing to be able to do that. And it's just fantastic. It's a fantastic uh, project. And I thought it would just be some little cult thing that, you know, I was surprised that we even made a record. And now we've made two. It's on, on Domino, which is a great record label. Uh, I'd like to thank the Arctic Monkeys for funding our, our career. <laughs> um, but um, but that's, that's just, they have a lot of really interesting music on Domino. Uh, Lawrence is amazing, you know. I mean, you've got John Hopkins on there, who I, I really adore. John Hopkins is electronic music and a whole host of stuff. So it's lovely to be on Domino, and it's 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 just a very interesting band. I mean, uh, and it's just sort of quietly evolving itself. There's no, I don't know if we'll do any more after this raft of touring. We probably will do. We're touring right up until Christmas, on and off. It's just been a really pleasant surprise to do something non commercial straight from the heart that's uh that seems to have connected with people you know Sahil's got such a beautiful voice I could just sit there and listen to him sing all day you know I could listen to James tell stories all day through his, his voice and his guitar as well so just being in the middle of it it's just it's phenomenal fun and again it's it's new territory you know th there's never been a a guitar, double bass, Serangi vocal group before. <laughs> so I've sort of accidentally found myself in the middle of something new. And again, it's there's no sort of reference point, really. There's just, you just do what you do and see what happens. And yeah, it's great. You've been with, I'm thinking of some other guys you've played with, people like Scott Matthews, mm. Liam Bailey, John mm. Smith, all these guys. Yeah. How do you put yourself in that position where you commit to something emotionally and musically not really knowing what's where it's going to go is that a challenge for you not really no i just do it just really i just be in the moment and listen to what they're doing i mean all those guys that you mentioned they're very different 
all completely incredible at what they do. Yeah. You know, I mean, Scott's, Scott's uh, songwriting and his voice and the level of his musicianship is just astronomical. You know, Liam Bailey is, is a phenomenal talent. He's just a, an explosion of a human being, you know, <laughs> and John Smith's just a master craftsman. You know, he's, his musicianship on the guitar and uh, the quality of his songwriting is, is just second to none, you know. So, but I, I just feel like a kid, you know, you get in a situation like that and you just sort of shut your eyes and do your best and then you come out the other side of it and just think, wow, you know, how nice to have opportunities like that. I kind of feel like you're there for them, but at the same time you're taking something away each, each and every time you play with those guys. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, John, for example, has been a great inspiration for me just to practice guitar for, for, for one thing. You know, if I'm writing a song, I'll think of the intricacy that Scott's able to bring to it, uh, which I can't. <laughs> but then it makes you work towards, it makes you work towards stuff like that, you know. And the rawness of the expression of somebody like Liam, when he sings, he's just so completely free and unencumbered and so 100% committed to every note that he's singing and you know it's always really inspiring i mean your main inspiration comes from other people no doubt about it um yes yeah, lovely it's great talking about inspiration let's let's just touch on the album you did with danny uh thompson yeah a couple of years ago watching the well uh, i wish it was a couple of years ago it was 2010 was it really oh, time yeah time. yeah um well Talk us through that because that was an incredible journey for that you. That was that was deep for me, you know. I mean, I met I met Danny, uh, as I say, at the band on the wall at that gig, and I was so green, you know. I was sort of 20, 23, and I showed up outside the band on the wall on a rainy sort of Manchester afternoon with my little plywood double bass that I just forked out. Two hundred and seventy-five quid it was. I think to the penny, it was about everything I owned in the world at that point. Uh, and I stood outside the door waiting for him to show up because I just thought, I'm, I'll meet him. I don't know what I'm going to say, but maybe I can watch the sound check. Maybe I can pick some, something up, you know. And they were very late. They showed up late. Uh, he was so generous. It, it, he could have swatted me aside and I could have just been in the I was literally in the way, you know, I stood in the doorway. But he let me come in and watch the sound check. He, he let me go up on stage and play his bass. Then he played my bass for ages and... People went off for dinner, but he spent time with me, you know, and he was incredibly encouraging. And they always say, never meet your heroes. But there, there was the opposite of that right there. You know, he changed the course of my life then. Um, and I sort of stayed in touch with him down the years and sent him CDs of mine. And I wrote him a letter when he, he got ill in 1998, uh, quite seriously ill. And I found out what hospital he was in. And I wrote a letter to the ward and just said, I want to thank you, you know. I don't even know if you're ever going to get this letter, but you've changed my life. I've got a career now and you're still, I never pick up a bass and I still, to this day, I never pick up the double bass without thinking about him at some point. He's just there, you know, it's like my dad, musically, really. Um, just that depth of feeling in, 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 in his sound and in his music. Anyway, I got the chance through the Manchester Jazz Festival, gave me a commission and I said, what do you want to do? So without thinking about it, I just thought, I want to write something for Danny. So I wrote him an orchestral suite in 12 parts. Uh, I phoned him up and said, can I do this? Expecting him fully to say no. 
And he said, yes. And I was just like, <laughs> put the phone down. <laughs> I had no idea. What, I just had a, just had a baby. It was like, Tom was about four months old. It's chaos. But somehow I managed to write some music out of it. We did a concert of it, which was very successful, sold out the Royal Northern College. It was quite a deep moment for me. And then I took four years after that to develop it to a record. And it was self-financed bit by bit, recorded in, in, in sections as and when we had the buddy type thing. And yeah, it got released on, on name in 2010. Uh, I still can't believe it sort of happened, to be honest with you. It wasn't particularly a commercial success, but it got some very good reviews. And for, for me, it was just a love letter to him. I wanted to hear him play in an orchestral setting, which I never had, you know, behind some strings and, and, and a harp and stuff like that, which I achieved. Yeah, I'm still pretty pleased with it. I listen to it every now and again and just think uh, I'm contemplating uh, – I think in about three years' time I get it back, so I might think of maybe re-releasing it again, giving it another shot. Uh, but it was a real gift to be given an opportunity to actually work with, to actually work with him uh, and do something for him, document my relationship with him in that way, uh, and write him a record. It was, was a real, a real honour, really. Yeah, it's a pretty rare thing. And another great player you've. Um tipped your hat to in the past is Mingus oh man yeah wow are you still, are you still working with the, the, the Mingus um, well we still get together it's basically the sort of cream of Manchester's uh, jazz glitterati or a lot of them um, that was again that was just something I did in 2001 I pulled that together for the Manchester Jazz Festival and wrote out some of my own arrangements of his stuff and did some of his arrangements of his stuff and I just wanted to, uh, obviously posthumously because he's not around, but I just wanted to acknowledge what a huge influence he'd been on me and, and his passion for everything to do with his music and his bass playing just infused me. You know, when I've, I got hold of his first two or three records, they weren't his, the first records of his that I heard around the time when I was starting to play. And uh, I'd just never heard anything like it it didn't really fit into the jazz canon in the way that everything else seemed to at all you know his influences were so broad and he wrote his own rule book on so many things and i loved the idea of that and i kind of set up it's called oedipus mingus uh our version of that and they didn't set it up to be a repertory band or to record or you know god i mean no one needs to hear my versions of Charles Mingus's music, just go and buy a Mingus CD. But live, it's a real experience because the band put, you know, I insist on the band putting every drop of blood they've got into that whole gig. And it goes to some crazy places, that gig. We've had some, we really have taken the paint off some walls and some venues in our time. Um, and then it just doesn't happen for a year, year and a half. And then we just get back together again. And it's, it's like any great friendship. It's, it hasn't diminished at all. It's we're right back where we were. Um, and I'm kind of, I keep thinking, Oh, I need to put some new material in the back. It's sort of, it's evolved to where it's at. And I just kind of like that really. I don't have grand ambitions for it at all. Uh, but I haven't played with them for a good year and a half. So it's probably about time to give everyone a ring and try and get a gig maybe around Christmas or something. But I love that. I love being in the middle of a really large ensemble yelling at everybody and kicking people and <laughs> having a bite out of the trombone play, you know, 
That's great. I mean, it became a thing in that gig. How can we get rid of the trombonist, Chris Bridges? So I just put him on my shoulders and like literally take him down to the far end of the club and just drop him there in the middle of a solo, you know. <laughs> and then he'd carry on and just go through the whole club and he'd have the whole club going mental. Yeah, it's pretty wild, that band. I do love it. It's great. It's great playing Mingus's music as well. It's just superb, superb music. Yeah, and it deserves to be heard, you know. So that's a nice thing, at least... I mean, I wrote to Sue Mingus by email there and said, boy, it's just this oinky Manchester doing your husband's music. I just wanted you to know. And I got a very nice reply back off her going, that's lovely, you know. So it's good to keep keep the flame going for people like that, for sure. It's a legend. What's coming up next, John? What's, what's sort of driving you at the moment? Um, You've obviously got the tour with Lamb coming up. The tour with Lamb's coming up. I've got Yorks and Thorn car on going right through the... So lots of touring. The, on and off, yeah. Uh, we're playing the West Holt stage at Glastonbury on Sunday uh, in Kamazi Washington's slot from last year, which I'm really excited right, about. Yeah. That. I'm interested to see how that goes down. Um, so I'm sort of con- I'm sort of thinking about that and writing some more music for that. Uh, and I did my first ever gig completely on my own, just singing and playing guitar, doing a few songs last week. I uh, did a fundraiser for the Green Party last week uh, in Newport here at the Key Art Centre. And uh, I bit the bullet and did a whole set on my own, which is, yeah, it was good. Yeah, nobody left, so it was all right. <laughs> but uh, that's encouraging me to keep writing some more songs. I've got a few, I've got loads of fragments on the boil, you know, so I need to kind of focus in on that. And I'd quite like to just do an album from home and, that's principally led like that. Um, I started writing a book, uh, which is something which I'm focusing on, not musical necessarily, but um, I've wanted to do a novel for a long time. So I finally sort of started doing that this year. Uh, I've, I've started a, a, a kind of a, a getting right back into practice in a way that I haven't done for quite a long time. I think it's a good time for me at the moment as a bass player, sort of growth-wise, I'm trying to play a lot more with the bow and push myself further, you know, to improve, improve my ear and improve my technique. Um, trying to spend more time at the piano, trying to enlarge my voicings, vocabulary, and I'm just still still trying to grow. But I've I've taken my foot off the accelerator a bit more time-wise to spend more time with my family because you know I've been pushing so hard for a long time and. Uh, Balance is really important. Um, my boys are 10 and 5, and I kind of want to spend some time off the road if I can and see as much of them as I possibly can for a while, which might involve doing a bit more teaching. I teach at a place called Platform One uh, Degree College here part-time, which I really, really enjoy. I've had some uh, fantastic students passing through there. That's been a great experience. Nothing focuses you like trying to teach you have to unpick everything that you do automatically and find a way of putting that across to somebody else, which is a really good and valuable experience. Um, yes, I'm kind of, I don't know, other than that, uh, I'm playing with Liam, actually. I'm playing with Liam at the Green Man as well. Great. Playing with Catherine Williams. I'm playing with her at Glastonbury. I'm doing a few sort of remote recordings from home for, for artists here and there. Uh, I've done some re- recording with uh, Hannah Sanders and Ben Savage, who are on the kind of Cambridge folk scenes, phenomenal uh, talent. 
Uh, he's in a band called The Willows, Ben, really good. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, it's really nice being on the Isle of Wight. It's recalibrated things for me, stepping out of the fast lane a bit more, and it's given me a bit more space to 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 grow as a musician, you know, and as a person, hopefully. Spending a lot of time swimming in the sea and growing a beard, as you can see. Yeah, great job. <laughs> and going full Gandalf, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've reached, an, I mean, I just turned 50 as well, which is quite a big, you know, you tend to look backwards and forwards at that point. It's a bit of a plateau. Um, and, I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really pretty happy and quite contented at the moment. Uh, could probably do with it a few more gigs here and there, but you always could, you know, looking forward to the phone ringing and seeing what's on the other end here and there. Uh, but yeah, generally it tends to ring. Yeah. So things are good. Yeah. Good man. Good to hear it. Thanks yeah. ever so much, John, for um, talking with us today, mate. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to check out what I'm up to, I've got a website, which yeah. is uh, just John Thorne, J O N T H R N E dot co dot UK. Uh, and if anybody's, interested in anything that I've said and wants to follow up on it, just said, drop me an email. You know, I always love hooking in with people and seeing, seeing if I can help or if they can help me or, you know, what exchange we can get together. So do get in touch if you want to. There you go, guys. Go, go and grab John. He's the man. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing you, a bit more of you this year, John. Thanks very much, mate. We'll be catching you at a gig soon. Definitely. Um, and yeah, thanks again, mate. Beautiful. Cheers, Nick. Lots of love, mate. Cheers. Thanks, thanks everyone. Hey guys, so thank you so much for listening to that episode of the SBL podcast. Again, we're going to link to all John's bits and bobs in the show notes and also a huge, huge, huge shout out to uh, to John as well for coming and hanging out and chatting to Nick and, you know, letting us know everything that he's got going on and, and for just being such a cool guy and also for, you know, for inspiring me when I was an up-and-coming bass player. Um, all them times that I saw him gig absolutely blew me away every time. So, yeah, huge shout out to you guys. Huge shout out to John. Hopefully we'll see you next week. Um, we've got, I think, hmm, I'm not actually going to tell you we've got next week. I think, no, it's gone. <laughs> I did. It was in my mind somewhere. You'll have to wait and see. But, um, yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'm going to keep it a secret because, honestly, I really know and I'm just not telling you strategically. No, no seriously, I've just completely forgotten who we've got next week. I think it might be Kerry Nordstrand. Maybe it's not Kerry Nordstrand. Um, he's coming up anyway, so keep a lookout for, for his podcast. Uh, remember, guys, if you've not checked out the Academy over at Scott's Bass Lessons as well, go do so. Um, if your hobby is to semi-pro bass playing, you're really focused on taking your bass playing to the next level, um, or you just have been stuck in a rut for far too long, the membership at SBL is absolutely for you, okay? If you can spare just 30 to 60 minutes a day for four to five days a week, we can take your bass playing to a completely new level in no time. You can check it out over at scottsbassessence.com, grab your 14-day free trial, take the thing for a test drive just to see if you like it. If you don't, for whatever reason, you can cancel with the click of one button. You won't be billed one penny or one cent, should I say, wherever you are in the world. Just take it for a test drive, see if it's for you. And if you are there, you know, and you go into the, our forum, give me a shout, shoot me a PM and, and say hi, because I'm in there every day. It'd be great to hear from you. Other than that, guys, as always, take it easy and I'll see you in the shed. Mm-hmm.